Well, welcome to ANC this morning where we talk about sneakers. Oh, y'all, preacher sneakers. You should follow that on Instagram. And then you should watch the docuseries. Never mind, I won't say that. Just know that we're going to stop singing Hillsong songs for real because, because the empire is um, super dubious. I don't know why I'm saying this. Have you, seen the, have you seen it? Have you seen the docuseries? Anybody's heartbroken over, over how much? Yeah, we're going to. That's not going to be us, guys. Yeah. Next thing. Welcome to ANC this morning. Now that ANC and that nonsense is behind us, Googling right now, Hillsong people, cat paws on keyboard. Now that Easter's behind us and the lectionary now sort of charts an interesting path, and I'm the, I'm the preacher who follows the lectionary because I'm committed to it, and I always get to the big day we're working on, be it Easter or Christmas or Epiphany or Pentecost, and I get to that, and I wake up the next morning, I'm like, oh no, what are we going to do next? And there's always something next. But the path that we're going to follow now is a bit unexpected to me. And I woke up last Monday and I'm like, oh no, I've never, didn't, I've never done a preaching series from the book of Acts, as strange as that might sound. To my knowledge, I've never developed a series of sermons from where we're about to go over the next five or six weeks. And that, of course, is the wisdom of a lectionary for a person like me, is that it takes you places you weren't aware you needed to go, right? It takes you there on purpose. And so we're going to be doing that over the next little bit. You guys know me, you can always count on me to gyrate right around the teachings of Jesus. I, grow, I never grow tired of turning the gem, as we say in the industry, for a new facet, a new understanding, a new consideration. I think historically, the words that we attribute to the very mouth of Jesus, according to those who heard him say them, are, are enough for me in so many ways. They're my favorite, it's my canon within the canon. But I have to admit, now that we're emerging from this great pause, which I feel like we are, uh, given where the world is today. Now that we're coming out of this great pandemic pause, it feels appropriate to consider the subject of community, which of course is what the book of Acts is all about. The teachings of Jesus gave birth to a community of people who actually believed that they could do what he said they could do and that they could live the way that he said that they should live. The teachings of Jesus gave birth to a whole community of people who took him very seriously. And this is what Luke records for us in the book of Acts, which of course, like most of the New Testament, is actually a letter. It's a piece of correspondence between two parties. And in this case, it's the second piece of a letter that he writes to a friend named Theophilus, who I think would be a fabulous name for a ferret, if you had a ferret. <laughs> and I don't know why it wouldn't work for a dog, but just trust me, it could work for a cat, Theophilus the cat. But this is the second piece of a two-part historical remembrance or book, you, if you will, that Luke writes to his friend called Theophilus. It's what happens to Jesus in that Gospel of Luke and then what happens next to his friends in the continuation of the book of Acts. And of course, Acts, Acts chapter 1 begins by telling the story of the ascension of Jesus. It picks up right, in effect, where the, the, the Gospel of Luke leaves off. And the ascension must have been, think about it for a second, we look at it as it's been painted to us over the centuries as this, oh, this God be praised sort of moment, but think about it for a second, what a stunning event it would have been. Maybe just as stunning and shocking as the resurrection itself, it must have been also somewhat disappointing. Now think about it, they had just gotten him back from the grave, and now he floats away in the clouds and he disappears. And it's interesting to me too that as I think of looking back on the happenings of the life of Jesus, this was probably the only major thing that happened that you could have actually staged. Anybody can disappear somebody. You can't put them on a cross, watch them, and die, watch them die, put them in a hole, and have them walk out. That's relatively difficult to, to, to reproduce. But anybody could, you know, puff some smoke and, ooh, he disappeared. But the ascension of Jesus is where the book of Luke, I'm sorry, the book of Acts picks up. 
But unlike the other cases in the Bible when people were translated or literally caught up from this place into some other place, the ascension of Jesus comes with some promises, both by Jesus to his friends and angels that speak on behalf of God. And those promises were related to a return. It was a return flight already booked, if you will. It's true, at least two, maybe three other figures in Jewish history disappeared without dying. I'm sure you remember Enoch and Elijah. Some would say even Moses were caught up from this realm into another. Jesus wasn't the only one to be called back, after, to be called back from the grave after dying, and he wasn't also the only one to be whisked away unclaimed by death, death itself in the end. So the book of Acts will be our guide now for a while, and we're going to look at some interesting stories. I would call them impressive. I would, in fact, say these are the kinds of stories that you really want the eyewitnesses to write down while you still have them alive, because these are stories that people are going to struggle to even believe. That's the book of Acts. These stories are going to come to us in no particular chronological order. We'll just take them as the lectionary prescribes them. In fact, ironically, we're going to end our journey through the book of Acts back at Acts chapter 2 which isn't nearly the beginning, as I'm sure you can figure out, all you math majors in the room. That's the story, if you remember, of Jesus' friends gathered in an upper room, right, in somebody's borrowed upstairs area. That's the story where they nearly burn it down. I don't know if you remember the cloven tongues of fire and the whole thing. Well, this is the place where a unique empowerment occurs of the disciples and the friends of Jesus. You see, they had been stuck there not knowing what to do next. I'm sure you remember what happens in Pentecost. It's the kind of empowerment that they would need to push them out into the whole world to go and tell everyone what they were speaking about in Jerusalem. And of course, we refer to that as Pentecost. Acts 2, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is an important, not the most important, but it is an important uh, story related to the early church and its development. But let me say this, and if I'm speaking to no other former Pentecostals than Andrew and I in the room... um, If you didn't grow up in charismatic or Pentecostal circles, let me just say this. When we get to the conversation of Pentecost, we will not reduce that conversation to a list of people who are full of the Holy Spirit because they speak in tongues and act exuberantly in the public assembly. It is far bigger than that, guys. What a historical reduction that served no one in the end to simply reduce a third of the Trinity of God in a conversation around churches that do this or churches that don't. We won't go there over my, not dead body, but we're not going to go there. It's a far bigger conversation than that. Let me just say that. So I don't, I'm going to put that signpost up if you're recovering from those parts of the body of Christ, as are a few of us. As you know, a big part of any study related to church history or uh, theology in general, if you, if you will, has to evolve some honesty and some candor around the evolution of language as people begin to try to describe what just happened in the life of Jesus. It didn't come poured out fully complete, if you will. It comes in stages. And so as language evolves, they're trying to figure out what do we say just happened? Who is this guy? Like what, what just occurred? He just floated away on the clouds. What, what is all of this going on? These are the stories that we're going to begin to, con- to consider together. Language isn't always as helpful as we think that it is. In some ways it is, but language never fully encapsulates or describes or contains the thing that it refers to. Think of the word wind, for example. Just the W-I-N-D or the word sun doesn't fully contain the object that it refers to. And so we'll take our time as we watch the language around the early church evolve as they describe what happened in the life of Jesus Christ. And we're going to develop that more over time. That's good enough for now. Just know that the book of Acts preserves for us an evolution theologically of a community trying to figure out ways to root themselves in what Jesus had taught. And so we will see some intentionality and we're going to see some randomness in these stories and we'll take them as they come. I want to offer you this shocking, hopefully not shocking, preamble though as we begin. 
had some great conversation after the 930 service around this statement. I don't idolize the early church. They got as much wrong as they got right. Guys, if they got it all right, Paul wouldn't have written any letters. Right? So we don't want to go back to those things just because they were the first things that happened. They got as much wrong as they got right, just like us. We don't necessarily look back at the actions in the book of Acts or any of the apostles and, and those beliefs with an eye to replicate that, that stuff in 2022 here in Austin. You guys know how I think about time and revelation. It layers over time. It stacks like you're stacking bricks. It builds like you're building sedimentary limestone. It progresses. It moves in a, gener- in a direction. We can appreciate and we can validate all of the age of the apostles and all that they taught and felt and thought without needing to replicate every bit of it today. That would be foolish in my mind. Maybe an illustration will help. We hold this together. And you would have seen it on the, on the slide before the service or on the slide on social media. Think of a tree ring. Now, a full-grown tree consists actually, as you see it today, of every single growth season that it has ever come through. That tree has preserved in stages every season that it has ever lived. Every season, you see, contributes a ring. And if you know how to, it's ironic you have to cut it down to read how old the tree is. Of course, it's dead when you cut it down to look at it. But if you know how to read a tree ring, you can even look at what years the locusts came out. Are you aware of this? Extra growth happens every 17 years in the Midwest because there's extra protein in the soil. So think of a tree ring as we set this series up. A tree doesn't go back, though and say, you know what, how to be a better tree? Let's go back to that very first ring. Let's go be that little sapling now that it's a major oak. That would make no sense at all. It keeps building on top of all of those foundations that preceded it. Well, likewise, and the same is actually true for you as well, we don't reverse the clock and try to build an identical replica of something that was fresh and new 2,000 years ago. We can appreciate its freshness without needing to transport it completely in identical form to these days. You see, good stuff keeps building. It keeps building on what came before it. It would be counterproductive, in my view, to set as our goal to become a New Testament church. Now, I know that language bounces around, and I I know people mostly mean well about that. I don't want to be a New Testament church. I want to be a church in 2022 on South Lamar in Austin, Texas. I don't know if anybody else is with me here. I think we have things that we have added over time. Our work is to understand those tree rings, right, what unique contribution that they each represent, but also to step forward. What did it add at the time? How did it fill in some of the gaps of the knowledge of God? What did it add to the understanding of humanity? Every single tree ring in the story of God and the community that formed around it in the teachings of Jesus, every one of them matters, and they all fill in something important about the nature of God, the nature of the cosmos, and even our purpose. And we get to keep adding, though. It never stops, you see. It never, ever stops moving forward. So the scriptures are snapshots, they're glimpses. Think of them as tree rings or windows into other worlds, portals into previous growth seasons. But we're not required to throw out science and reason and experience and all that we've learned and all the additional theological development that has happened over the time. We're not required to exchange that for something that happened 2,000 years ago. Forward is always the direction. I hope you can hear my heart this morning. Onward, outward, always forward towards greater freedom, greater liberation, greater love and care for all things. And if this feels super intuitive to you and you say, well, duh, preacher, of course forward is always the gear. I would just remind you, the church is famous for going backwards. (laughs) It's famous for setting our sights on old things and saying we're afraid of forward movement, let's go back. And I would just suggest to you that that's where the gospel and the church are not the same. And they've never been the same. 
If it feels intuitive to you, then maybe you just release things well. The rest of us will amble our way through the book of Acts and learn from some lessons. And it'll be proof enough as we go for you to see how even the very first generation of apostles, even those who had lived and walked and eaten with Jesus and spent the night with Jesus by the sea, even they quickly forget and want to reverse back to other things. And so we're going to use that as a guide as we go. For whatever reason, the church is like a mechanical transmission. It wants to keep slipping into reverse. As much as we want to drive forward, it wants to keep slipping in reverse. And I think we ought to agree not to let it together as we enter a new season where we're looking at some principles of community. And that is my lengthy introduction to this series. So let's read our text today. It comes to us from the book of Acts, and it's going to drop us awkwardly right in the middle of a situation that I will explain to us in a second. But it reads this way, Acts 5, 27 through 32. Luke writes, when they had brought them, they had them stand before the council, and the high priest questioned them, them, of course, being the disciples, saying, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than any human authority. Verse 30, the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand of, as leader and savior that he may give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, this is an awkward drop into the middle of a conversation midstream. Let me see if I can fill in some gaps for you. The religious authorities thought that they were rid of Jesus when they had him killed. They thought they were done with this with this person when they had him murdered. The problem, of course, was that little pesky business about a body that won't stay buried. And of course, these crazy Galileans interpret uh, anything you want there to say simpletons or you know, uneducated people. That's what, what, what the text would have been communicating. This body wouldn't stay buried and these simple people won't stop talking to everyone about it. So the leaders do what powerful figures always seem to do. They act in their own best interest and they have the apostles arrested publicly and thrown into public jails. The problem, of course, being they were dealing with a God who set all people free. All people, no exceptions. And not only that, this was also a God that had the unmitigated gall to speak to simple people, which would have been an enormous insult to the religious leaders of that day. You see, they were the ones who were supposed to curate conversations between humanity and God. But no, these simple people, these Galileans, heard straight from God according to them. And so they preached about this Jesus in public places. And you know the story. Angels literally jailbreak them out, and they go right back to the crime of speaking about Jesus. So the members of the Sanhedrin of the religious council of the time, they round them up again for the second time, only this time a little more peacefully because the apostles by this point had become so popular among the gathered crowds that the leaders were afraid that they might incite a mob. In fact, they, they were afraid, afraid that the mob might stone them for arresting the apostles, so they do it ever so gingerly, ever so gently. They arrest them again, and they put them in jail for the second time, and this is where our story picks up. You see, the apostles were doing exactly as the angel of God had instructed them to do. They were teaching the people about the life of Jesus, the whole story. Most importantly, the part about that body that won't stay buried. And oh yeah, also the part about who's to blame for murdering him in the first place. This is courage we're looking at, friends. These cats had found their guts by this point. They had somehow outgrown their obsession of their own introspection and their own well-being, and they were risking everything to tell people what they saw with their own eyes. But the idea that caught my attention in this story comes to us in verse 30, and I will just briefly reread it again, and it's a, it's a little quote from Peter as he's 
essentially preaching or speaking back to the Sanhedrin. And he says, the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. There's a reason I want to begin here. Here's the thought. How we think about God drives the kind of community that we build every time without fail. In fact, this might be the single most important thing to consider if you're talking about building community. You see, if you think that God is punitive and violent and you envision a God that is enraged and disgusted with the nature and shortcomings of humanity, then you're going to build community that reflects that every time. That's what you'll build. I know there's other ideas in the text today, but here's the question that's pulling on my heart today. It it might be some residue from Holy Week from Easter. I want to tug on it a little bit and see if we can't get some freedom here. Here's the question. Who killed Jesus and why did he have to die? Specifically, how did the apostles think about that question? Well, Peter and the others were in big trouble with the authorities because they laid that blame squarely at the feet of their religious authorities again and again. And this is on my mind because we've just come through a holy week, and here's what I know to be true about most believers in America today or in the world today. They believe that God had to murder Jesus in order to remind God's self how to love people. And this comes from someplace. It's probably the worst little bit of thinking that I can possibly imagine. You see, many believers have shaped their entire theology around this central idea. God is mad at people. He's also mad at you, probably for what you did last night while no one was looking. If it wasn't so true, it might be ever so slightly funny, but it's not. A majority of Christians actually believe that God had to sacrifice Jesus in order to accept us. I want to pull on that today. Hear me, friend. God did not murder Jesus. Empire did. Jesus died exactly the kind of death that a vocal, prophetic, popular plaintiff of power and religious abuse might expect to die, given how he conducted himself at that time. He died exactly how you might expect You see, when you parody power the way Jesus did, when you ride into town on a donkey, essentially mocking Caesar, the other person also referred to as the son of God at the time, in the same town on the same day, only from a different direction, when you do that and you accept the adulation of the masses and you heal their sick and you open their blind eyes and you feed those that are hungry, when you do that while at the same time you refuse to comply with the orders of the religious franchise of the day, then you can expect to be murdered. Power will do that every time to what lies in its way. And Peter lays this blame at the feet of some authorities, of the same authorities, who are now attempting to prohibit them from continuing this work of liberation. But friends, friends, they understood that loyalty could only be pledged to one side of this power struggle. And the apostles knew which side was in the business of liberation and which side was in the business of incarceration. God intervened, as you know, on behalf of Jesus by raising him from the dead. And this was thought by the friends of Jesus and by extension by the masses increasingly over time as vindication of Jesus' high stakes advocacy and provocative teachings on behalf of the oppressed. You see, God opened a white hot cold case that the elites had tried their very best to shut, but the genie wouldn't go back in the bottle, would it? And these people wouldn't shut up because you cannot stop liberation by incarcerating it. Good news that sets people free will not be contained no matter how hard power and empire try to snuff it out. And here's why that matters, friend. If you see God as an angry deity constantly burning with rage at humanity for its many imperfections, then fear and hatred will grow native and will grow wild in your heart towards others. God isn't mad, friend. 
God is love. And if you truly believe that God is love, then you will constantly shift and upgrade and update and reconfigure your human relationships, relationships until they reflect that belief. How we think about God drives how we treat one another. I'll say it over and over until it sticks. But you say, so many people that I know are full of judgment, religious people, they're full of hate and anger and judgment. Why? Well, because that's exactly how they envision God. Now, this we could trace to a million different sources, but there's one in particular that I want to focus on this morning. Possibly the most infamous single sermon ever preached on North American soil was entitled this. I wonder if you know the name of it. Can anybody guess? Sinner, oh my God, you know, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards himself. Now, listen, if that's a shocking title, you've never heard of it, rejoice with me this morning that you haven't. But the point remains, the point remains, friend, whether or not you've heard of it, this sermon impacted American culture and theology as much as any single thing that has ever been said on this soil. It launched a cultural revival known as the Great Awakening, which launched another called the Second Great Awakening. And the hinge pin was this image of an angry God looking for a reason, any reason to stop short of burning all of us in eternal conscious flames of torture. This thinking impacted generations to follow. You see, distorted ideas about God give birth to distorted and destructive communities. And I won't torture you with the details of that actual sermon. It's laborious, it's tedious, it's way too long. I read it this week, don't if you don't want to. But I will summarize it to say this. It's completely invested in this idea of a God who is consumed with wrath. A God whose holiness and righteousness would somehow be further bolstered by the fiery flames of a hell fueled by your burning body and mine if we don't believe it. I know. So yeah, that's super helpful. (laughs) Friends, hear me. This sermon almost literally launched American evangelicalism single-handedly as we know it. Think of the fear that such theology produces. People dangling by a thread over an open pit of hell. Here's my question. Does an image of a maniacal God obsessed with destroying humanity resonate with everything you know to be true about how Jesus lived and taught and walked among us? Of course it doesn't. My point again, y'all, the most important foundation of a healthy community is an ironclad understanding that God's desire is to set all souls free, not a few, not those at the top, not those with the microphone or those who, who are the, the most important, all souls free. And if we don't remain committed to that, we're going to build nasty little versions of new tribes with new walls and new places, but there's still tribes. Healing and restoration, liberation from prisons, both figurative and literal forgiveness. That's what real community is all about. And it never looks like power that tolerates the exploitation of the oppressed. Never, ever. You see, a highly refined doctrine of hell won't do the trick. It won't change people in the end, even if it was the preferred workhorse of early American Puritans like Jonathan Edwards. Images of an angry God can't help. You see, wrath and vengeance and violence and anger are not what God's about. That's never been the case. And Peter, the leader of the early church, lays lays the blame of the death of Jesus squarely at the feet of the religious establishment where it belonged. You see, my friend, God didn't murder Jesus. Power eliminated Jesus. But then love raised him back to new life as love always does. Easter is a season, and we're in it now. And thinking about our thinking, because it informs the kind of community that we build, that's the work ahead of us now. So this final thought. 
I'm not saying that ideas about an angry God don't turn up in some of the earlier tree rings of Christian theology. You know they do. Of course they do. But we've also seen the kinds of societies that that thinking builds. They're fear-based. They're almost always racist. They're certainly sexist and patriarchal. They're always rooted in scarcity. They're always controlling someone's narrow interests. Those are communities that are known for self-destruction over time, and they're devoid of the power of the gospel, and we can do better. Never forget, God called creation good before anything else happened. We call this the doctrine of original goodness. And friends, everything hangs on this assumption. Love is not a force of anger or violence or revenge. It's an unstoppable force of goodness and kindness and forgiveness. Love is always moving in the direction of greater freedom and redemption for all things, not just believers, all things. So as we emerge from this great pause and begin to rebuild our community, let's settle for nothing short of freedom for all, for everyone, no exceptions. Let's settle for nothing short of an image of a loving God, a God whose heart breaks for the broken, a God who is patient and kind and full of mercy. This final, final thought, instead of a conclusion, I know I'm asking you to rethink a lot of what you were taught growing up. I'm actually doing that on purpose. I pull these words from silence in, with you in mind, knowing what we have survived together. I know most of us have come through and survived the shadow, a huge dark shadow of American evangelicalism. I know we have. I know that we were taught to, that the fear of the Lord in our Christian education, and if you were publicly educated in Texas, it's practically a Christian education. You know how textbooks go in Texas. We think we can straighten the whole world out by erasing theories and science and all the things. But if you grew up in this space that said, no, 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 preacher, wait a second. Fear of God is actually the beginning of wisdom. I wanna just point out to you what Solomon was addressing. In Proverbs chapter nine, verse 10, it reads this way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is inside. But don't forget, when God spoke to humanity, remember what those messages almost invariably began as? Don't be afraid, be not afraid. Some hundred times or more in the scriptures, an angel on, speaking on behalf of God addresses people by saying, don't be afraid. Hear me, church. When King Solomon penned these words, fear would have been the only human posture towards anything divine. But Solomon adds wisdom. What's the point here? Here's the tree ring. At the time when Solomon wrote in fourth century before Christ, fear would have been the only thing people knew. But, but, but Solomon says, no, 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 no. Fear that leads to a deeper understanding of this Godhead. Wisdom will turn out to be the theme that holds the entire book of Proverbs together. You know, sometimes standing here, I can literally feel your mind struggle with what your heart and your body know to be true. Hear me, church. God is not a monster. He was never a monster. And I'm so sorry if that was the image that was used by former generations to scare literally the hell out of you. They were mostly worried what you were going to do with your sexuality and your choices. They mostly were trying to control behavior because they thought that's what it was about. And so God becomes a monster that watches from afar, ready to hit you with a stick the moment you stray. And I'm here to tell you, friend, it's time for an upgrade if that is how you think of God. We will only replicate that in our communities if we can't put this aside. And maybe you say, I don't know, my friend. I don't think I suffer from that spiritual trauma. Ask yourself this question. When calamity befalls you, what's the first thing you think of? Oh, I must have done something to deserve this. What did I do wrong? This is payback for something else. If that thought bubbles up inside you, it's okay. We were taught a very small image of a very powerless God, if that's the case. And my argument today is that we must upgrade it. 
Friend, God is love. God is disposed on behalf of all humankind in all things. And I wonder this morning if you might be in the mood or in, in the headspace for an upgrade of your vision of God. I think it's important. I think it's important. There's plenty of time if this is the case. Don't feel like you're behind. Many of us are waking up perfectly on cue in midlife saying, wait a minute, it's exactly, that's exactly when, it, when it's designed to happen. So if that's you this morning, I wonder if you wouldn't stand on your feet and just take a moment. We don't need, maybe you won't stand on your feet. I guess the answer is no. Y'all, what toxic nonsense. What toxic nonsense to stand in open spaces and yell at people and try to convince them that they're this close to burning forever in hell. Oh, God, save us from that. We can do so much better. You know that's not who God is. So I don't know if you're in the mood this morning to do an upgrade, but I, you know what happens when you have to upgrade your phone? It goes real quiet for a while. And so I just imagine us entering a season of, I'm just going to power down a minute. I'm going to come back online in a world that looks at this differently. God is love. God has always loved you. That's never been in question, friend.